is Zip Rap on BFBS with Kate Chabot. Here we go again. Work begins on the next defence review. There will be some tough decisions to be made because costs of equipment and personnel do keep growing more rapidly than I think the budget will grow. America urges Europe to be tough on Russia and has something to say about China's defence plans too. And from British soldier to Blackwater, life as a security contractor in Iraq. At the state opening of Parliament, the Queen confirmed a strategic defence and security review will happen in the coming months. She pledged the government will do whatever is necessary to ensure that our courageous armed forces can keep Britain safe. The Cabinet Office says work has already begun. Our reporter James Hurst has been speaking to Professor Malcolm Chalmers from the defence and security think tank, the Royal United Services Institute. I think some of the most interesting questions in this review are going to be about what sort of armed forces we want in 2020 and thereafter because those require long lead times in terms of making decisions about which particular new capabilities we want to start, put on the starting block and, and which we don't. And, and, and there's some really interesting decisions that will have to be made there in relation to a whole range of areas. The last Strategic Defence and Security Review was a huge shake-up for the armed forces. Will it be another big shake-up, do you think? My instinct is it won't be such a big shake-up as in 2010. That will all depend in the end about on the size of the economies that are being, that the MOD's being asked to take from the Treasury. And the reason why I don't think it'll be a big shake-up is because the Conservative Party manifesto committed to the existing equipment programme, 1% real growth for 10 years, and also it committed to maintaining regular personnel numbers. So those two commitments together are going to really restrain the ability of the government to make radical changes. I think the MOD will be worried that anything that is not equipment on the one hand and personnel spending on the other will be ruthlessly squeezed, training and infrastructure in particular. Uh, I think that would be a foolish thing to do. We'll have to see how the numbers play out. There's a lot of gamesmanship going on now between the Treasury and the Ministry of Defence, I suspect. Uh, but uh, that's at the margins, that's short-term activity, especially on the training side. In terms of the broad shape of the armed forces, I think those two personnel and equipment decisions have uh, fix some of the main issues of structure. So we're not going to see the army reduced to 60,000 uh, or uh, the aircraft carriers scrapped uh, or uh, something radical of that nature, but there will be some tough decisions to be made because costs of equipment and personnel do keep growing uh, more rapidly than I think the budget will grow. The central question for many people is, is we got a 10-year plan last time, Future Force 2020. Is it still fit for purpose? Well, of course, the focus now will shift to Future Force 2025, and there will be new things which we have to think about, which we didn't have to think about last time. And the most important decisions are actually will be about what we have for the next five years, because that's the, the political cycle. Clearly, the decisions in 2010, in addition to the budget cuts, which cut the number of personnel quite radically in particular, we also took these big gaps in capability in relation to carrier capability during this decade. We have none. 
and uh, maritime patrol aircraft. So people will be looking on the former, uh, not only on, uh, on what form the carrier deployment takes, whether we have two operational carriers or actually only one, which is, I think, more likely, uh, and what sort of aircraft we put on, what numbers of F-35s we procure. All that, I think, will be part of the mix uh, because uh, even if not, we don't have... A, great deal of F-35s in by 2020, I think this review will have to say how many we're planning to get by 2025, because that's part of that 10-year budget. And then in the maritime patrol aircraft, uh, very embarrassing, I think quite damaging to our operational independence in our own waters. Uh, there'll be a lot of pressure for the government to announce how it intends to fill that gap in the not-too-distant future, and that's a, a commitment that hasn't yet been made, and I think will have to be made in this review. That was Professor Malcolm Chalmers from Rusi talking to James Hurst. Our defence analyst Christopher Lee is here. And Christopher, you maintain that talking about the specifics of the next defence review is a mistake at this stage. It, it's misleading. It is utterly misleading because it's, it's a, you're not going to get a 2010 type, the lessons of that, a 2010 type sort of defence review, the lessons for that were harshly learned. And what have you learned about the defence review? But, well, I, for a start, I, mean, I think Malcolm Chalmers, Professor Chalmers, who's a lovely, lovely man from Edinburgh, um, he does a great disservice to the military, to the chiefs of staff and the cabinet office and the foreign office when he talks about the gamesmanship involved here. These guys are thinking through, in very careful terms, how this is done. I'll give you some examples of it. Uh, out at Shrevenham, which is the sort of staff college of thinking in, in, in the military, there's a thing called the, um, the Strategic Trends Development Concepts Doctrine Centre. They are thinking, and this is part of the Defence Review, they're thinking of the global strategic trends right out to... 2065. Hasn't it always been the way, though? No, they haven't done that. Not this far problem. ahead. Well, they didn't have to, because they had the Russians or the Soviet Union. It was a sort of set peace Cold War thing you knew about. But goes out to them, but the important bit for the review will be thinking out to 2045. <laughs> now, you've also got, uh, on another uh, 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 committee sitting, is the Ministry of Defence sitting with the Cabinet Office and thinking, thinking through this, the National Security Risk Assessment. So you've got to think, what is the threat to us? What sort of, you know, let's go fighting, yes, but what sort of fighting are we going to have to do? Do you think that the thinking in that, this, the threat assessment has improved since the last Defence Review? It's been complicated. It's been complicated by a number of things, and that is that we're now talking about a different type of warfare, even from when they were talking in 2010. And that is, that is a great complication. But that leads in to the, the third part of the thinking that's going on at the moment. There is a, a, a thing called the Defence Strategy Group. It's chaired by the Chief of the Defence Staff, Chief of Defence Staff's idea. And he has the permanent undersecretary, John Thompson, who is the civilian head of the Ministry of Defence. He used to be the financial director, civilian head. Now, I'll tell you some of the things they discovered. It's a, it's a two-year programme. It's so-called long-term policies. And they're thinking about the transatlantic security, um, China, intelligence priorities, whether you, what you want to do about nuclear weapons, climate change, also the relationship between United Kingdom and France, Middle East and Africa, certainly out to 2030. Now that will decide what British defence policy is going to be, certainly up to even 2045. And then they come back and they say, OK, 
you want to fix this, this is the sort of... Uh, then It's then when right. you can get down to Malcolm Charles' nuts and bolts about uh, ships well, and, talk and, about, and, and planes. Um, talking about nuts and bolts, um, let's talk about kit now, because it's been announced that the Royal Navy's Merlin Mark II helicopter will have crow's nest long-range surveillance. Talas UK has won the contract to supply the radar and mission system. So what is crow's what nest is- and what will it do? Commander Graham Edmonds is vice chairman at the UK National Defence Association, joins us, joins us now via Skype. Good to speak to you today. Uh, so what is Crow's Nest exactly? Well, Crow's Nest is um, the name of the programme to replace the uh, the Seeking Mark 7, which carries an AEW radar. Uh, Crow's Nest is the programme which will replace it, um, rather than uh, the name of the radar. The radar that, th- that uh, Talos is providing is called Searchwater. Now, the Seeking Mark 7s have search water for AEW, but the one that's being proposed to fit into the Merlins is a, a much more advanced version um, and uh, will provide not only traditional airborne early warning for ships, but it can also uh, look at targets over land um, and uh, hidden in land clutter and, and so forth. Christopher, how good will this make the Merlin Mark II helicopter? I reckon that, um, I mean, the commander's probably got a better take on this, but I reckon the Merlin at the moment is probably the best Merlin Mark II, best maritime helicopter in most navies in the world. That's, that I'm sure is right. When you put the whole system together, and it is a system, it becomes, world-beating's not right, the expression. But if you go back, let's say, to 1982, when we sent two carriers south... One of the problems we had, 8,000 miles away, we had no AEW, airborne early warning. And so we got some seekings, and we bolted on the radar uh, beneath that. What this is, is something which will work not simply as the helicopter by itself and also the, uh, the surveillance system. It'll work with, for example, when the first uh, aircraft carrier gets to sea, and also with her frigate destroyer escorts. It is mm. a powerful system altogether. Commander Graham Ed- Edmonds, is it the versatility of it also that's such an important feature? Well, it, it's um, uh, being provided in a slightly different way than being permanently fixed uh, to a Merlin. The, the plan is that uh, the, the Navy or the Ministry of Defence will buy uh, 10 kits, and uh, they can be fitted to any of the 30 uh, Merlin uh, Mark II ASW helicopters, all of which will have a slight modification so that the, the kit can be bolted on as and when needed, as opposed to having, I think, what is it, seven or ten permanently equipped uh, Mark VII seekings we, as we have in the past. And briefly, when is it likely to be operational? 2018. All right, we'll look forward to it. Commander Graham Edmonds, Vice Chairman at the UK National Defence Association. Thank you very much for your time today. Um, Christopher, uh, news that the Merlin fleet has actually been suspended from flying because a problem was found with one of the bolts in the rotary tail, I think, of an, well, in, an Italian-operated Merlin. Yeah, what, what's going on? As far as we know, there's nothing wrong with the uh, um, the, the UK, but it's, it's rather like, you know, you get a motor car and the airbag goes wonky, then all that class of motor car is recalled. Um, they're just saying, look, don't fly... precaution, then, as yeah, opposed to something that's seriously worrying. until we can make sure, double-check what went wrong with the Italian aircraft, and then you start taking off the tail rotor of uh, of the UK aircraft and you look at it, is it the same problem? I mean, it could be, because the Italians have done this before, a bit of mild steel when there should have been stainless steel.
Still to come, America issues a stern warning to China about its island projects. And Devil's Playground, life as a blackwater contractor in Iraq. BFBS SITREP. US Vice President Joe Biden has denounced what he called Russia's pure aggression in Ukraine, warning that Western nations must be prepared to respond with further sanctions. Speaking at the Brookings Institution, he's urged European leaders to keep measures against Moscow in place until the terms of a ceasefire in eastern Ukraine are met. Professor Michael Stathis joins us from the University of Southern Utah. Good to speak to you today. President Obama met NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg earlier this week, gave some brief comments about Russia. What did he have to say? Well, the comment that was made uh, was a very simple one, uh, referring to uh, uh, Russia's announcement of military exercises in uh, the, uh, the North uh, the North Sea and the, uh, the Arctic Circle as increasingly aggressive uh, posturing. And uh, Soltenberg himself um, warned Putin to stop this kind of snap uh, military exercise, referring to the fact that uh, um, uh, Putin has announced uh, uh, a kind of a challenge to uh, the uh, NATO exercises in the north, and uh, it, it is a little interesting, especially when you consider the uh, the NATO title for those exercises as the Arctic Challenge Exercise. Maybe Putin took that literally. Mm. Christopher, what's your reading of all of this? Um, I mean, Michael wouldn't say this, actually, because he's a very cautious fellow. But I reckon... <laughs> he did say it was a little interesting, though, That's story. the word around Cedar City, I can tell you. Listen, um, Putin gets word that the uh, Arctic Challenge is on because it's published. It's a published exercise. And normally, when a government raises a big exercise, and we're talking, what I think, with the, uh, with the Russians, we're talking about uh, three battle fleets of aircraft, as they call them, fleets, we would call them groups, uh, plus large ground forces. It is in direct retaliation, and there wasn't What's the official... going on in central Russia, this exercise yeah, we're talking, this huge yeah. one? and it wasn't, an, it wasn't officially notified or whatever. And Putin is like this. Putin goes along and says, they're doing that, what are we going to do? Mm. And we're just going to sort of run our own exercise, and it's the first of seven exercises he's going to run between now and October. We're going to do that, and we're going to show that we're not being bullied around. Professor Michael Stather, do, do you get any um, idea whether President Putin really takes an awful, awful lot of notice about what Obama and Yale Stoltenberg might say after having met in Washington? Oh, I'm sure he takes it into consideration, but uh, I don't know how seriously uh, he takes it. You know, the one way to look at this, and uh, maybe I shouldn't say this, but uh, Christopher, say Christopher and ahead. I may agree. Uh, <laughs> you both say things you uh, shouldn't. You know, good old Cold War, tit for tat, uh, in the form of uh, military exercises. Or am I just showing my old age? <laughs> It might be a little bit of that. Uh, but, Professor Stathis, um, what does America think NATO should be doing about all of this? What is the feeling on the ground there? Well, uh, apart from Washington um, and uh, across the United States, there is a feeling that uh, uh, the United States, especially with the Republicans, uh, should be taking uh, more of an aggressive stand concerning um, uh, the, uh, the Black Sea, uh, the Ukraine, Crimea, and uh, well, um, uh, Vladimir Putin uh, in uh, in general, he he is very often the butt of uh, late night uh, television jokes here. But uh, you know, quite frankly, people do see him as uh, 
someone very, very serious uh, in this uh, in this day and age. Of course, this morning it looks like Putin is more concerned about American meddling in uh, FIFA mm. uh, and soccer than uh, than anything yes. else. <laughs> Christopher, I tell you what, but, but it proves that I mean Putin's got something to say. Well, he listens to what he's going to say because he doesn't want to uh, lose the 2018 World Cup. But that's another issue altogether. I tell you one thing that's interesting. You, you wouldn't have heard this, Michael. We were talking about the defence review, which is just about starting work on in the United Kingdom. Uh, wouldn't you bet that the generals, just as the American generals would have been doing, and the chiefs of staff, they'd have been pointing at Putin, and then they would have been pointing at the treasuries in their, both their countries and mm. saying, "Look, there you are." What, uh, do you, what do you reckon? Christopher, I know you're a Russian speaker. I, I wonder if you could say to me in Russian, um, we don't want to lose the World Cup and we need another, exor- <laughs> we need another exercise. Uh, we need another exercise. Another military exercise. Another military exercise. <laughs> and then it would all end up with... Uh, Go on. It means, apart from that, it's nothing, nothing, nothing. Professor Michael Stathis, on that, we must leave it. Thank you for your time today. Um, Other news around this week, Christopher. Tony Blair is no longer a Middle East envoy. I'm not sure he was in the first place. (gasps) I will tell you something. The Americans are... And all. And all. Um, uh, The Americans gave him the job, fundamentally, or that was the accusation that it was, you know, it was a consolation, uh, a job handed out by George Bush. But it's interesting that the Americans have really wanted wanted him for some time to move on. Now, he hasn't apparently achieved very much, and he knew he was going to go. But there's one thing not to, not to forget. Uh, he still Blair, wants to have a hand, doesn't he, in uh, the peace but, but in the, the Middle East? About, uh, Blair, he did, Tony Blair did actually make a lot of difference with the, uh, with the commercial, industrial and business uh, opportunities uh, for the Palestinians in the Gaza, and sometimes we actually forget that he, he did that. Okay, David Miliband has been speaking about UK defence and foreign policy. What say he? Well, I mean, David Miliband has probably got it right. Is David Miliband's view, and, I, and it's quite interesting that. What's he said then? What's he got right? Well, he's got particularly right that you ought to you ought to look as he's in the business out of charities, especially in Africa, that you ought to look where your responsibilities lay in enforcing your policies and what you can do rather than rather than simply saying we spy enemies and if you start thinking the breadth of those then you see why what we were talking earlier a two-year program of strategic studies chaired by the chief of defense staff and the permanent undersecretary why they are looking exactly the same way and in fact uh, david miliband is not very very far away from them um what progress is there on finding the new chair of the defense select committee right here we go the uh, here we go again yes two things are particularly interesting what is the sort of, what is the timetable uh, what happens here is that it is parliament that votes, all the MPs vote for who are going to be the chairman or chairwomen or chairs, right? Then the Speaker of the House of Commons gets up and says, OK, we've got two weeks that we can actually pull this all together. So the chairmen have got the jobs, but then it is their individual parties, then they actually give people the jobs uh, on those committees. Fascinating this time, of course, with a huge majority, the whole complexion of the, uh, uh, are they going to change? And the word is that the House of Commons Defence Committee will not be so powerful as it was in the last Parliament because of the, of the majority that the Conservative Party has. This is BFBS. Sit, rep.
The U.S. Defense Secretary Ash Carter has warned China to stop building artificial islands in the South China Sea. He was speaking in Hawaii at the start of an 11-day tour across the Asia-Pacific region. Mr Carter called for an immediate halt to land reclamation prog- projects in the South China Seas and the militarization of the new territories created. With its actions in the South China Sea, China is out of step with both international norms that underscore the Asia-Pacific security architecture and the regional consensus in favor of a non-coercive approach to this and other long-standing disputes. Well, let's talk to Mark Stone, who is Asia correspondent for Sky News. Good to speak to you today, Mark. America clearly annoyed by this activity on the Spratly Islands, known as, to the Chinese as Nansha Kwando, I think. Remind us what China has been doing there, and if my accent was quite right there. <laughs> Your accent was great. And uh, yeah, I have to say, I think the language by uh, Mr Carter was, was pretty punchy stuff. Uh, and I think it will be of some concern uh, to countries in the region. The Spratly Islands lie just off the west coast of the Philippines, uh, and they're claimed by pretty much every country in the region. The difference, though, is that what is happening now is that a, a sort of a, a, a strong China, a China which now has, uh, whose economic rise has really um, allowed it to expand its reach, uh, is now building uh, on what was what were just reefs but are now... Uh, quite large islands that it's reclaimed from the seas. They've managed to build themselves a, a, a fast jet runway, or they're certainly in the process of doing that. And the only reason we know about this is because satellite images and U.S. spy planes have flown over this area to have a look at it. So that's what Mr. Carter's talking about. He's talking about China's reach uh, spreading far and wide from its uh, from its territorial mm. borders. But of course, China will say. It's always claimed these islands. They are theirs. Dates, uh, they have claims dating back to the 13th century, so they say. And the other thing, of course, that they'll, they'll point out is that many other countries have already got military bases on other islands around the Spratlys. Taiwan, Malaysia, the Philippines, all of them have military bases. The difference, of course, is that when China does something, it does it much, much bigger uh, mm-hmm. and much, much more quickly. So what China's building uh, complete, is completely different from what the, the other countries so, have got. So China's seen by the US to be spreading, and it's also published a review of its military strategy. What does that say, and how concerning is that for, for the US? Well, it's really interesting, this. It's the first time that China has ever published a, a military a defense white paper, which is more than a, a deck of top trumps, if you like. In previous years, all they've done is just listed how many of this, that, and the other they've got. On this occasion, uh, they've done something entirely different and actually talked about their strategy, their military stra- strategy. Uh, and what they're doing uh, is changing that strategy from one of uh, defense to one of offense, if you like. They're going to have a, well, they hope they will have a blue water navy. Uh, they talk about open seas protection, by which they mean uh, that they will be operating with other navies in the region, their allies in the region, uh, in the in the high seas rather than just off their coast. Uh, they talk about several different areas where they uh, are highlighting uh, that they highlight as important. They talk about nuclear defense as being important. They talk specifically uh, about uh, cyber warfare as being important, uh, and of course o- the open water navy as well. Uh, so very interesting change in strategy in that they are now openly talking about what their defence strategy is. But I don't really think any of this should come as a massive surprise, certainly to Western politicians or or chiefs of staff, because uh, they will look at how China has changed in the past 10, 15 years. The fact that they are now 
they have so much economic clout that they feel they are at a, at a moment in time where they're able to project their reach further than they could before. And don't forget that President Xi Jinping, uh, who's been in office just two years, has already uh, managed to uh, present himself as being the most powerful leader, I would say, of China since Chairman Mao. All right, Mark Stone, thanks for your time today. The head of al-Qaeda's militia in Syria has said that his group's aim is to capture Damascus and bring down President Assad. Abu Mohammed al-Golani, who leads the Nusra Front, was speaking in a rare interview with Al Jazeera. Christopher, what's he been saying and why is it important? Uh, well, it's, it's important because he's been told to say it. I mean, this is... This By is, whom? Uh, this, is, this, is, this is coming through a Zawari... In, and who was the head of Al-Qaeda. Don't forget, we go back to 2013 when there was the great split. Well, it wasn't that big a split, but it was important if you happened to be working in, in Syria. And uh, you've got uh, Al-Nusra uh, splitting away at that time. Now, what they're saying at the moment, or they claim they're saying, is that the Al-Qaeda is saying to Al-Nusra, be careful, do not launch attacks on the West <laughs> from Syria. We actually do need Western thinking at a later stage because we will be in conflict in many ways with IS. Well, the advance of Islamic State fighters across Iraq is certainly not the vision coalition forces had for the country after they toppled Saddam Hussein's regime back in 2003. But what are the security contractors, often former servicemen, who went to the country on lucrative deals to protect those whose job it was to try and stabilise and rebuild Iraq? Simon Chambers is one such veteran. After 22 years in the army, he signed with the infamous Blackwater security firm and has written about his experiences in a book called Devil's Playground. Simon, good to see you here today. What, Hello. What made you decide to become a private contractor? Was it unfinished business after 22 years in the army? No, I had a big mortgage and I needed to pay the bills and it was a continuation of what I've been doing for well, most of my uh, my life. And what was your job in Iraq exactly? Um, I was the only Brit on Paul Bremer's bodyguard team, um, didn't the diplomat so. who was there in the aftermath. Uh, yeah, he was the um, head of the coalition uh, government, if you like. And um, uh, I wasn't uh, anything special. My CV landed on their desk at a time when they needed a foreign national to put through the system. And I ended up looking after one of his um, his uh, support staff. This is the man you describe in the book, or who was known by the Iraqis as Fat Dollar. Who, yes, who, was, who was this man? Uh, I'd rather not say, but he wasn't liked. And uh, he didn't like his body We, we, we can imagine what he looked like. Um, and in the book, you more than once seem a bit frustrated by the limitations about your job. Uh, four of your comrades were killed in an ambush in Fallujah. Uh, and the hatred you felt for the insurgents who were responsible made you feel that you, you said at the time you, you'd have gladly dropped napalm on them. And you also said of, of a prisoner who was taken who'd been trying to break into your camp that you'd have shot him if you'd had the chance. Is that bravado? Um... No, not or really. would you have really committed those acts had you been able to or felt able to? Well, at the time, we were seeing uh, the same TV uh, shots that everyone else was, which were the bodies being dragged out of the car, set fire to, uh, hung on the bridge, and people that you, you considered civilised acting like a bunch of cavemen. And quite honestly, I, my, I personally would have gone in there and quite happily machine gunned a lot of them. So what stops you? Um... We were considering leaving the camp and going to try and recover the bodies and we were told by the American politician that we were looking after that if we left the camp we'd be considered as mercenaries and we'd all be arrested. So mm. common sense prevailed and we didn't. 
Of course, uh, later after you left, crimes were committed by four Blackwater contractors. One of them was convicted of first-degree murder after massacres in Baghdad in 2007. How easy might it have been in such a volatile country, given the things that people were seeing, and under such pressure, for there to be more incidents, or, or have there been incidents that we, to date, do not know about? And that particular incident happened a long time um, after, after left. I left the country, but... Um, there is also a lot going on behind the scenes with that particular incident as well. It's, uh, there's a lot that we don't know about. A lot of forensics were, were hidden or not um, declared at the time. So we'll have to wait and see how that one pans out. Mm. What do you make of the current situation in Iraq, um, given it's, what you It's did worse there. than what it was when I was there. Um, now the Iraqi um, security forces are supposedly in charge. You don't know where the rounds are going to come from. Many times we were shot at by bona fide Iraqi police. Uh, Does it make you want to go out there when you see what you see on the telly now? Um, not Iraq. I'd probably Syria? be better off. <laughs> well, at least you know where the enemy is there, yeah. <laughs> They're in front of you. Now, as an ex-serviceman speaking to a largely services audience, what do you want people listening to understand by what you've written in the book? Um, well, the book really should put people off going out and doing this type of work. Um, there's a, a saying that there's no security in security. They, uh, they can sack you on a whim, um, but they expect loyalty out of you. Um, OK, yeah, you are paid good money and you take the, the chances to go with it. But at the same time, um, you haven't got the same backup uh, as the military have. All right. Simon Chambers, thanks for coming in. And Devil's Playground is out now. Well, that's all we have time for this week. My thanks to all our contributors. Thanks for listening. Do keep your comments coming in on Twitter. We are at BFBS SITREP. Join us again next week. Thanks, Christopher, for being here. From me, Kate Chabot. See you next week. Bye-bye. And music, music for the British forces. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio.